You are listening to the African Campfire Stories podcast. The African Campfire Stories podcast is a podcast program that is dedicated to the telling of African history stories and events. Welcome. To bring you African history, we have to go through a lot of information including names of people and names of places. Should you pick up anything we get wrong or if you just need to reach us, please use our website www.africancampfirestories.com. You can also search for African Campfire Stories on social media. Before you listen to today's episode of the African Campfire Stories podcast, we suggest that you check out the previous episodes of our Cold War Pawns series, that is, from episode 2 all the way to episode 8. This will help you to understand our story so far. Just a quick announcement. Today's episode will be the last episode of the Cold War Pawns on which we will be discussing specifically non-African countries. From the next episode, we will finally go into discussing the African continent in detail. Of course, the Cold War was an international event, so we will refer to the international happenings and goings-on from time to time. But from episode 10, we will be turning to Africa. The first African country we will cover in detail in our Cold War Pawn series is the Democratic Republic of the Congo. But before we start with the DRC, we will provide you with an episode that will cover the quick summary of foreign intervention in Africa, including colonization and a quick summary on the struggle for independence in Africa. That will be episode 10. On episode 11, we will begin with the discussion on the DRC. Without much further ado, here is today's episode. This is episode 9, Cold War Pawns series, Iranian Oil, Cuba and the Mafia. In 2013, the government of the United States of America formally admitted to its involvement in a secret coup attempt that brought down the democratically elected Prime Minister of Iran and his government. When the White House was asked in 2015 if there were any plans to apologize to Iran, they responded by saying, not at this moment, no. In 1953, Mohammad Mossadegh resigned from his position as the Prime Minister of Iran after a coup attempt that was driven by America's Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, and MI6. MI6 is Britain's foreign intelligence agency, their version of the CIA. It doesn't look like the U.S. government volunteered the release of this information. This information was released under the U.S. Freedom of Information laws. That this secret Iranian coup took place in 1953 is an interesting occurrence. This is because the secret coup took place around the time in U.S. politics when a U.S. congressman named John Moss was spearheading a drive to make the U.S. government more transparent. Congressman John Moss started this transparency drive after he had requested and been refused documents pertaining to the firing of thousands of U.S. government employees by the U.S. President Dwight Eisenhower. These thousands of government employees had been fired apparently because they were said to be communists. John Moss's efforts led to the eventual signing into law of the Freedom of Information Act by U.S. President Lyndon Johnson in 1966. This act doesn't mean that all U.S. government information can be released on request by the public, though. There are many exceptions, 
many have to do with national security. But in 2013, 60 years after the secret coup took place, somebody must have requested this information from the U.S. government. And under the U.S. Freedom of Information laws, details of the CIA's and MI6's involvement in the Iranian coup were released. The British government, the information revealed, had been kicking and screaming against the release of this information. Not that this information about the coup was a surprise to most people who know about the subject. The US and Britain's involvement have always been suspected. In fact, it is said to be cited as the main reason why Iran tends to be mistrustful of the West even to this day. Since this is a series about the Cold War, you won't be wrong to jump to the conclusion that this coup had a lot to do with the Cold War. And since this is the Middle East, how about some oil too? Back in episode 3, when we explained why a relatively thorough background of the Cold War will be required for our Cold War Pawns series, we also said that in cases where the Cold War interventions seemed to evince traces of colonization, we will say so. The Iranian case is a case of colonization mixed with Cold War concerns. You see, back in 1913, Britain had bought a majority stake in Iranian oil. Thus, the Anglo-Persian oil company was born. That company is known today as British Petroleum, or BP. Mohammad Mossadegh, the Iranian prime minister elected in 1951, was not playing ball. This crazy guy Mossadegh was doing all types of silly things for the Iranian people, like instituting social security for his people and implementing land reforms. To make things worse, he then nationalized the Iranian oil company. Why though? Well, it seems Mossadegh had misbehaved by asking for the Anglo-Iranian oil company to provide his government with documents so that his government could audit the company. He was also trying to limit the company's control over Iranian oil reserves. This damned guy had to be stopped. But do not despair. MI6 was already on the case. But seeing as the British Empire was a shadow of its former self by this time, and Britain had little money, what about asking for help from somebody who had money and somebody who was still a superpower? What about America? The problem with America was that she was not playing ball regarding Iran at the beginning. America was screaming at Britain for behaving badly in Iran. US Secretary of State, that is, Foreign Minister Dean Acheson, even went as far as saying that the British were, open quote, destructive and determined on a rule or ruin policy in Iran, close quote. This was because Britain had started a worldwide campaign of discrediting Iran. Britain was also instigating a worldwide boycott of Iranian oil. They also mobilized their army with the intention of seizing some oil fields. But Clement Attlee, the then British Prime Minister, decided to stick to the boycott and getting British agents in Iran to cause chaos. But everything changed when Dwight Eisenhower became US president. The Eisenhower government was a little bit more paranoid than that of his predecessor, Harry Truman. Also, Winston Churchill had replaced Clement Attlee and became British prime minister again. If you know something about the history of the Second World War in Western Europe, you will know that Eisenhower, back when he was a general in the US Army and in command of all Allied armies in Western Europe, was best friends with British Prime Minister Winston Churchill. 
Now, these two wartime best buds were simultaneously the leaders of the two leading Western countries of the time. So, as always happens between friends, something was worked out concerning Iran. And that something was a joint British and US coup d'etat. The coup effectively restored the Shah of Iran to power. The Shah regime would remain in power until 1979. A virulently anti-Western revolution would break out and the world has been stuck with a perpetually pissed off Iran since then. I can hear some of you wondering and whispering amongst yourselves, where is the USSR in all of this? All this time has been the USSR this and the USA that. Where is the USSR in all this Iran mess, you might ask? Do not despair, dear listener. You dare not think that the union of Soviet socialist republics would be completely absent from the Iranian shenanigans. This is the Cold War period we are covering, and you should know better by now. Some say that the only reason it was possible for the British government to eventually convince the Americans to go messing around in Iran was because the USSR themselves had been messing around there earlier on. Early in the Second World War, before the USA came into the war, Britain and the USSR invaded and occupied Iran together. This invasion took place in 1941. Britain already had neighboring Iraq as her colony, so invading Iran was just a matter of moving west into Iran and also south from the Persian Gulf. The USSR shared a part of her southern border with Iran. So the USSR invaded Iran from the north. This was at a time when the West and Stalin still kinda sang from the same hymn book. The excuse for this invasion was that Britain and the USA needed to transport war materials into the USSR through Iran. And to be fair to both the USSR and Britain, they really needed to have this route open for the transportation of British and American wartime aid to the USSR. The USSR was suffering under the boot of Adolf Hitler's armies at this time. Remember in the previous episode we mentioned that the USSR lost an estimated 24 million people in the Second World War? However, the USSR and Britain both agreed that they would both end their occupation and leave Iran within six months after the war was over. The Second World War ended in 1945. Soon after that, Britain kept to her promises and left Iran. As for the USSR, they were happy where they were. Thank you very much. What we have not told you as yet is that the USSR and Britain had a long relationship with Iran. A relationship that Iran probably didn't want. We have already stated that back in 1913, Britain acquired the majority of Iranian oil. But now let's go back even further. Back in 1907, before the USSR even existed, Iran had been split into two spheres of influence. The northern part of Iran was the sphere of the Russian Empire. Remember from our earlier episodes that the Russian Empire was the state that was replaced by the USSR in the Russian Communist Revolution of 1917. Details of this are covered in episode 3. Britain's sphere was the south of Iran. We have already stated earlier on in this episode that in the case of Iran, colonization mixed very well with Cold War shenanigans. After World War I ended in 1918, both Britain and what we now know as the USSR left Iran. Iran went back to being ruled by a king. 
Iranian kings were called Shahs, by the way. This is an old title dating back to ancient Persia. In 1941, the USSR and Britain were back in Iran. But before you feel sorry for the Iranian rulers of the time, you should be aware of the fact that the Shah, though he claimed to be neutral during the Second World War, was kinda into Hitler. When he was asked by the Allies fighting against Hitler to remove the many German residents that were in Iran, the Shah refused. The presence of these Germans in Iran made Britain and the USSR super nervous. Oil was very important in World War II. Could a Hitler-loving Shah be trusted not to provide oil to his friend Hitler? Plus, it didn't help that his people were conducting pro-Nazi rallies in the Iranian capital of Tehran. The British and the USSR just had to invade. At least if you asked them, that is what they would have told you their reason for invading was. But now the war was over and the deadline for the USSR to depart had come and gone. What was Joseph Stalin plotting? Well, it turns out during the USSR's stay in Iran, Stalin had been involved in all types of naughty behavior. Stalin had been fermenting nothing less than a serious revolution in Iran. In that short time in Iran, the USSR had been able to form not one, but two breakaway communist republics, the People's Republic of Azerbaijan and the Kurdish People's Republic. Remember that in an earlier episode, we told you that if a country has peoples in its name, it's highly likely to be a communist country and it is also highly likely that the so-called people had nothing to do with electing that government. Stalin also formed a communist party in Iran called the Tude Party of Iran. All of this caused chaos in northern Iran. Chaos which Stalin cited as his main reason for not leaving Iran. This chaos is causing a security risk to my southern border, so I got to stay in Iran to deal with this problem. So said the clever by half Stalin. In any case, the USSR eventually left Iran. This was after Iran had protested to the newly formed United Nations and the UN Security Council. By the way, here is some interesting historical trivia. The complaint Iran lodged with the United Nations is the very first ever such complaint filed by a country in the UN's history. Iran was going to be the last country we talk about as far as providing you with the background of our Cold War porn series. It was going to be the last story we cover before launching directly into Africa. But then we remembered that Che Guevara shows up in the Democratic Republic of the Congo story of the Cold War and that Cuba also shows up in Angola's Cold War story. So that means before we leave you today, we have to cover Cuba Che Guevara, and also Fidel Castro, and the Mafia. Note that we're not going to give you a thorough lesson on Cuba, just the parts that are necessary for our Cold War pawns story. So here goes. In October 1965, an Argentinian man who had fought in the Cuban Revolution and in the Congo was executed by the Bolivian army with the help of the USA and a German Nazi. The last part about the Nazi might not be true though, like so much about this man, there are so many myths and legends that surround his reputation. After he was executed, the Argentinian man's hands were cut off to be used as proof of his death. This man is today a hero to many, but he's also seen by many others 
as a criminal who ordered the deaths of hundreds of people during the Cuban Revolution. Ernesto Che Guevara, along with Raul Castro, had been one of Fidel Castro's primary collaborators in the Cuban Revolution. He had resigned from the Cuban government in April 1965 and went to the Congo in Africa and then Bolivia to carry on what he considered to be a fight for freedom. He had left a cushy government job in Cuba and went deep into the dangerous jungles of the Congo and Bolivia because he felt that his job in Cuba was done. Some people, though, believe that he resigned from the Cuban government because of failure to see eye to eye with his friend Fidel Castro. So, what job was it that he felt was done in Cuba? That job was the little matter of overthrowing the Cuban government and taking political and military power in the country, which at the time was led by a U.S.-sponsored fellow named Fulgencio Batista. Under the U.S.-backed Batista government, Cuba was a paradox. It was a heaven for major U.S. corporations and also a paradise for the mafia. The latter owned large casinos and lavish hotels in Cuba and prowled around as if they owned the place. Yet Cuba was one of the poorest countries on earth. If you don't want to believe what Castro and his revolutionaries were complaining about, listen to the following statement. Open quote. There is no country in the world where economic colonization, humiliation, and exploitation were worse than in Cuba. In part, owing to my country's policies during the Batista regime, the accumulation of these mistakes has jeopardized all of Latin America. Close quote. This statement wasn't made by the U.S. hating USSR, nor was it made by the U.S. dissidents. It was John F. Kennedy who made that statement. We are using this statement from Kennedy because all of the American presidents who have been anti-Castro and anti-Cuba, none did more to topple Castro from power than Kennedy did. And because of the Bay of Pigs fiasco and the Cuban Missile Crisis that we will talk about today, he is probably the one US president most associated with Cuba. As the above quote from Kennedy shows, Cuba was a terrible place under the American-backed rule of Batista. Batista came to power in 1952. After he had conducted a military coup, he had been campaigning for Cuban leadership in an election, but he was trailing behind many other candidates. After he took power, the elections didn't matter any longer. Some months later, the Cuban revolution began. The leader of this revolution was a young Fidel Castro, he was imprisoned in 1953 for his revolutionary activities. After a year, he came out of jail and soon after that, he met another young man named Che Guevara. Together, they would conduct guerrilla warfare until in 1959, they were able to overthrow Batista and they took power in Cuba. What happened at this point is contested. There are some who looked at Castro's new government as leaning towards communism from the start and thus being a puppet of the USSR. However, some people take the view that Castro slowly converted to communism and started moving towards the welcoming arms of the USSR gradually after taking power. Those people claim that Castro initially wanted to ally himself with the USA but was shunned. Whatever the truth of Castro's early communist leanings, it is known that in 1961, 
Castro asked the U.S. Embassy to remove some of its staff from Cuba. He claimed that some of the embassy staff were CIA spies. The USA responded by cutting off relations with Cuba. It was only after Castro was dead that U.S.-Cuba relations were somewhat normalized, and that normalization happened in 2008 under Barack Obama. But President Trump is reversing that normalization. And people who are experts in these kind of things are forecasting dark times ahead for the relationship between the USA and Cuba. In any case, back to the early 1960s. After the US-Cuban relations went bad in 1961, the USA started blatantly doing what Castro had claimed they had been doing all along, and that is they used the CIA to spy on Cuba. But the US didn't stop there. America also began funding and training what was called the Cuban exiles. The eventual purpose of these exiles was to go back to Cuba to topple the new Castro regime. Kennedy took over as US president in early 1961, and as soon as he took power, the CIA presented him with a fully developed plan for ousting Castro. The CIA plan called for the use of the exiles. The plan was implemented in April 1961, and it was a spectacular failure. The event has come to be known to history as the Bay of Pigs, named after the place in Cuba where the exiles were landed. Of course, no one thinks that Cuba could beat America, or that America failed to defeat Cuba. The reason the plan didn't work is that Kennedy refused to openly provide military assistance to the exiles. He didn't just refuse the exiles, he also refused his own senior military advisors, and they were pissed. It wasn't Kennedy's goodness of conscience that made him refuse. There was no way such assistance could have been provided secretly. The whole world would have known that the USA was bullying a small country, and Kennedy didn't feel that such an international reputation was good for America. Kennedy also suspected that an open US adventure in Cuba would make the USSR retaliate. And he suspected that the retaliation would probably happen in Berlin. Nikita Khrushchev, who was the leader of the USSR at this time, had actually proudly said that Berlin was like the testicles of the USA. All he needed to do was to squeeze Berlin and the US would feel lots of pain. In June 1961, Kennedy and Khrushchev met for a conference in Vienna. Lo and behold, Khrushchev carried out his plan involving testicles. He troubled Kennedy for US shenanigans in Cuba and made threats about causing trouble in Berlin. Check out the previous episode, episode 8, to learn more about the Berlin situation. The next Cuban controversy is known to history as the Cuban Missile Crisis. We are not going to go into a lot of details about this, so here's a quick summary. Between Castro and Khrushchev, Somebody thought it would be a great idea to place some of the USSR nuclear weapons in Cuba. But we suspect that it was Khrushchev. He actually admitted to being the kingpin of this idea in his own book that he later wrote about himself. And placing nuclear weapons in Cuba is helpful how, you might be asking yourself. Yes, the weapons would be closer to the USA. And the USSR could bomb the USA quickly in case the Cold War became hot. But isn't this the Cold War? Doesn't both the USA and USSR respond strongly when each of them initiates some dangerous scheme? 
<laughs> Hasn't Khrushchev been listening to our Cold War Pawns episode so far? Does he not know the USA will have to retaliate? You might give yourself a pat on the back for having asked these questions, and you've asked these questions without being a leader of the USSR. So it makes you wonder then, did Khrushchev not think that the Americans would respond forcefully to this scheme? And they did. There was only one item on the job description for international affairs for a USA or USSR leader during the Cold War. And that was to make sure you were careful as concerns your opposite number. And Khrushchev failed on that one job. In October 1961, the USA found out about the nuclear weapons in Cuba. Even if Kennedy didn't want to act tough against the USSR on this issue, and he did waver a bit, he probably would have been forced to act. Even Kennedy himself later told those closest to him that the US military leaders would probably have ousted him had he not reacted belligerently to Khrushchev's provocative move. And this was bad news for Khrushchev. Khrushchev's time as leader of the USSR provides a glimpse of how the Cold War would have been like if most of the leaders of either the USA or the USSR had been careless. What sustained the Cold War from the 1940s to 1991 was an unspoken understanding between the USA and the USSR that neither of them would do something so stupid as to force the other into a corner. Remember in our episode about Berlin, episode 8, when Stalin blockaded Berlin? He did not stop the USA from delivering supplies into Berlin via the air. Stalin let the aerial delivery of goods and supplies into Berlin go on for close to a full year because he suspected that extending his blockade to the air and thus shutting down Berlin completely would have given the USA no choice but to fight. This is how you fought the Cold War. You did it by increasing the pressure. But you had to be careful to give the other guy a way out. Khrushchev put the USA in a corner with this move. And unlike that old wily fox, Stalin, Khrushchev's scheme left no way out for Kennedy but aggression. And he paid for it by being humiliated in front of the whole world. USSR ships headed for Cuba were stopped in the middle of the seas and forced back to the USSR. This action of stopping a country's ships in this manner was illegal according to international law. But international law be damned. The only way Khrushchev would have avoided humiliation would have been to escalate nuclear terror. And the relatively sane USSR leadership in Moscow were not going to allow it because that would have meant an all-out nuclear war. Soon after this flop, Khrushchev was kicked out of power in the USSR. This was partly because the leadership of the USSR, the Politburo, realized that Khrushchev did not know how to play ball in the Cold War. The Cold War wasn't supposed to be this warm, and Khrushchev had nearly made it very hot. One of the reasons that the Cold War remained cold for so many decades was because of the arrival of nuclear weapons into the art of war. No one knew how to have a limited nuclear war. To everyone in the leadership of both the USA and the USSR, it was apparent that once a nuclear war began, both countries would have to go all the way to mutual extinction. Only Fidel Castro wanted a nuclear war. This isn't just American propaganda about Castro. 
and there was a lot of anti-Castro propaganda from the USA, but not on this particular issue. In several interviews, Castro did say that he was disappointed that Khrushchev didn't go all the way. You can check out some of these interviews yourself. Some excerpts should be available somewhere on YouTube. He also later said this face-to-face to many American leaders. According to Robert McNamara, who was the U.S. Defense Secretary during the Cuban Missile Crisis, he bumped into Castro decades later in a conference in the early 90s. McNamara says Castro told him that he had told Khrushchev that he shouldn't back down. When McNamara very worriedly asked if Castro realized that that would have meant that half of America would have been wiped out and that most likely the whole of Cuba would have been sunk under the ocean, Castro replied by saying that yes, he had been ready for that kind of destruction. For all our sake, let's just hope that Castro's statement about wanting nuclear war were just an act for the world, just an act for him to retain a revolutionary reputation. But let's not forget that for a few days in October 1962, life as we know it today would have been drastically disturbed. Although Khrushchev was publicly humiliated, he however succeeded in getting America to remove its own nuclear weapons from Turkey, thus somewhat easing the U.S. nuclear stranglehold on the USSR. The problem for Khrushchev, though, is that Kennedy insisted that the Cuba-Turkey tit-for-tat not be made public. So the world never got to know at the time that Khrushchev's action was somewhat successful. Unfortunately, we are out of time. We have to stop here for today. We've reached the end of today's episode of our Cold War Pawns series. Catch us on the next episode as we finally turn towards the African continent. We will take a look at what was happening in Africa on the eve of the Cold War. We will look back at the time when overseas powers started venturing into Africa. We will talk about the Berlin Congress, where Africa was officially split between the different overseas powers for colonization purposes. We will be setting the ground for our discussion on the DRC. See you next time.